Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day. All right. Well, welcome, everyone, to Behind the Knife. I'm Frank Davis. I'm here with the rest of the vascular surgery team at the BTK, uh, Craig Brown and Nick Osborne. Our plan today was to discuss some of the details surrounding one of the most commonly tested and commonly encountered emergent vascular surgery, surgical scenarios, uh, acute limb ischemia. So whether you fancy yourself a vascular surgeon or not, it's critical for any surgical surgeon to be able to recognize acute limb ischemia as well as understand the principles of management and how to treat it. Uh, thanks, Frank. Um, I 100% agree. I think... Uh... You know, vascular surgeons in particular are going to spend a lot of time in their careers uh, seeing patients in the ER and taking them to the operating room for acute limb ischemia. But on top of that, I think a lot of um, you know, the medical professionals, whether they're medicine um, you know, hospitalists or ER physicians, are going to have to know how to recognize these things as well. So, uh, you know, we've tried to keep these episodes relatively short. The idea is that you guys can, you know, bang through these on a run or something like that. Um, and so we're going to do our best not to, you know, um, hang up too much on the nitty gritty details of acute limb ischemia. I think for the most part, uh, a lot of this isn't particularly controversial, um, but uh, there's also a lack of data for a lot of this stuff. So we'll do our best to highlight those areas. We're going to talk about uh, the anatomy a little bit. We'll talk about uh, what's important for residents in particular when you're calling your attendings, which is uh, the, cl- the, the common classification system we use for acute limb ischemia so that we kind of have a common language. And then we'll walk through quickly the initial assessment, some principles for management, and then a little bit at the end, we'll talk about some controversial kind of management decision-making, stuff like that. So, so great. I, I think let's dive in and let's talk first about like what actually is acute limb ischemia. So the majority of this episode will be spent using the most recent guidelines from the American Heart Association for the management of patients with lower extremity peripheral arterial disease. Um, and we'll put the link into this in the show notes. But this was published in 2016 as a collaboration between a multitude of different both surgical and medical organizations and provides a pretty comprehensive set of recommendations for all lower extremity peripheral arterial disease. But also within that document has a specific set of guidelines about the management, uh, presentation, and treatment of patients with acute limb ischemia. So Craig, why don't you quickly walk us through what acute limb ischemia is as well as how it's classified according to these guidelines. Yeah, um, so you know, I think everybody who's uh, ever seen uh, acute limb ischemia or gone through medical school has heard about the six Ps. We won't um, spend too much time talking about that, but you know, just for completeness, uh, we're talking about pain, pallor, pulselessness, poikilothermia, paresthesias, or paralysis. Um, the guidelines uh, from the American Heart Association actually specifically categorize acute limb ischemia into three specific categories. This is really based on the Rutherford classification. Um, so first, we have a viable limb, and they define that as a limb that's not immediately threatened, which has no sensory loss and no muscle weakness, and also has audible arterial and venous Doppler signals. That's uh, We'll kind of touch back on those points uh, for these different classifications. Uh, the next classification is a threatened limb, uh, but they have... Um, mild to moderate sensory or motor loss, inaudible arterial Dopplers, and then audible venous signals. Uh, and then the final category is irreversible limb, which has major tissue, tissue loss or uh, inevitably will have permanent nerve damage uh, with profound sensory, mu- sensory loss or muscle weakness or paralysis. And those patients often have inaudible arterial uh, and venous Doppler uh, signals. So we kind of talk about um, these subcategories and um, the way that this is split up in that document is really that uh, the Rutherford 
classification kind of maps onto those categories. So category one are these viable limbs uh, are the not immediately threatened uh, or category two, which is 2A or 2B. 2A is limbs that are marginally threatened, but we think salvageable if promptly treated. And then category 2B is uh, immediately threatened that require immediate revascularization for salvage. And then category three really is just irreversibly damaged limbs that are unsalvageable. Thanks, Craig. Um, so, you know, I think the classification system is mundane as it sounds, is probably one of the most important things when you're staffing a consult with uh, your vascular faculty or you're trying to make a decision about what to do with the patient because it really comes directly down to what you're going to do and how quickly you're going to do it. And so what we're wanting to hear is really de- divining out from the clinical presentation of the patient whether they've got an immediately threatened limb or there's time or if they've got an unsalvageable limb. And so um, as we kind of move through and kind of think about the initial assessment, we want to really kind of hone in on those things that are going to help us make those decisions. And so um, you already heard uh, us talk about the six P's, uh, my favorite being poikilothermia, just because it's a pretty awesome word. Um, but um, what's really important here is that you really want to ferret out from the history of these patients, not only whether they have any of these symptoms and signs, but also kind of the timing of how long it's been to help understand how threatened this limb is. Um, as you kind of develop more and more of the symptoms and signs uh, of acute limb ischemia and you have more time going on, obviously the more time without blood flow, the higher the risk that you're going to have limb loss. So um, really you want to make sure that this diagnosis is made mostly on history. It's not going to be made on uh, as much on the other parts as it is on history and very, very obvious physical exam findings. Your best friend is a Doppler. And so when we start to think about using the Doppler to help understand this, um, you really want to um, kind of develop your Doppler skills. So, um, Frank, why don't you take it over from there? Yeah, I think the, the Doppler and being able to do a rapid Doppler examination of not only patients' pedal pulses, popliteal pulses, but also femoral pulses is really important. And you want to listen, uh, as Craig properly mentioned in terms of your classification of Rutherford acute limb ischemia, you need to listen to both arterial as well as venous signals. And I think it's important to listen that these different levels of your arterial system is because this gives you insight into where a thrombus or potential embolism might be lodged. And I think it's important to have an understanding of the arterial physiology to think about the common locations for these arterial thrombus to be lodged. So these arterial thrombus or embolism typically lodge areas of bifurcation or vessel change in caliber. So the common places for these to lodge are at your common femoral bifurcation into your superficial to profunda by, uh, split there. Also down in your popliteal system. So where your popliteal and your baloney popliteal becomes uh, split into your anterior tibial and tibial pronator trunk, or even at your tibial pronator trunk. And based upon your Doppler examination, you can get a really good understanding of where that thrombus or that embolism might be at based upon the level of cutoff for arterial flow. Separately, well, one other thing, sorry, Nick. Separately, one, um, one other, we're talking a lot about lower extremity acute limb ischemia, but it also happens to the upper extremity, right? So somebody who has an arterial embolism can also shower something in their arm. So it's really common to see somebody who might have an acute limb ischemia and have it at brachial bifurcation. So when your brachial artery bifurcates into a radial ulnar, that's a really classic area for acute limb ischemia. And doing a Doppler examination of their brachial subclavian, or excuse me, subclavian brachial and radial ulnar might also give you uh, good examination skills and good information in terms of where that might be lodged. I think um, 
this brings up a really interesting case that Nick and I did when I was a three. Um, but the, the principle that I think I learned from that case is that these patients in particular who have embolic disease from like AFib or uh, mural thrombus in the ventricle, they can have multiple sites of disease. So they can have bilateral thrombus. They can have gut uh, ischemia. Nick and I actually, in that particular case, the lady had a uh, right common carotid thrombus that we had to cut down on and do an embolectomy and also a brachial thrombus. And so I think, um, you know, having an understanding of the history of the patient and the possible etiology is really, really important. Thanks, guys. Um, you know, I think so, as Frank discussed, I think the Doppler is super important in understanding that and helping to kind of identify where you think there, if, number one, whether there is or is not a signal somewhere and whether there is acute limb ischemia and then also where in the um, arterial tree it is. On top of that, the other really important um, physical exam that you really want to do is a neurologic exam. Since so much of the grading and determination of how viable the limb is going to be is going to be based upon their neurologic status. Do they have sensory or motor deficits? And that's really going to be critical when you start talking about what you're going to do next. Now, once we get down to the point where we're thinking, okay, this patient has acute limb ischemia, what are we going to do next? There's two critical things we have to think about. One of them is going to be immediate treatment of the patient. The other is, again, deciding where the thrombus or the atheroma or the embolism is in the arterial tree. And, and Frank's already kind of discussed that Doppler can help divine that out to some degree. Uh, in, in cases where it's really obvious, uh, you can do ephemeral, you know, a, a, a physical exam and you can feel ephemeral pulse um, and it's a great femoral pulse, and then you listen with Doppler and you have no signals below the knee, um, then you know that it's probably not at the femoral. Um, you know, that might be a good enough exam and you may not, uh, you may be pretty confident based on that with ABIs that you don't need anything else to take the patient to the operating room and do a procedure. Um, but then there are some other kind of times where you might not be as sure where the uh, burden of disease is. If you have no femoral pulse at all, you're not sure if the clot is going to be in the iliac system or if it's just at the common femoral, it may be helpful to get a CT scan just so that you can uh, image that better and have a better plan as to whether you're going to need to do any um, more than just a, a simple embolectomy thrombectomy. Um, again, it sometimes is confusing when you have patients who have existing peripheral artery disease, and we'll touch on that in just a couple minutes. But I think the real point is if you are confident on your exam, you have very classic findings and you have a very obvious change in the in the blood flow based on physical exam or Doppler, then that may be a patient you may be able to skip and go to the operating room without a CT scan. Um, but if you have any questions, a CT scan is a great next step. If you're in a facility where right now with the contrast shortages going on and there aren't a lot of CAT scans, you can also use duplex and duplex is a great way uh, to also identify where the um, loss is. Uh, and duplex is, is readily available and it is obviously not a risk to the patient's uh, kidney function. So um, moving on from there, we'll start to talk about treatment. So most importantly, this is something that when you guys are taking your oral boards, if you do not say this, you'll fail this exam question. So um, first thing, you just found out this patient has acute limb ischemia. The first step you're going to take in that patient is you're going to systemically heparinize that patient. It is a uh, limb-saving uh, measure. We know that it's going to increase the chance of limb salvage in patients. So moving on from after we've heparinized these patients, um, let's take it from there, Craig. Yeah, so, you know, uh, we have a patient who has acute limb ischemia, um, and basically we're going to talk now about um, the multitude of options for, for treatment. And, you know, this is where it gets a little hairy. I think the guidelines really don't provide a whole lot of uh, um, kind of guidance in this realm, but um, 
you know, Frank, what do you use with respect to um, guiding your path towards treatment decision making for patients with acute liver ischemia? Yeah, th- thanks, Craig. And I think this is where where I really enjoy vascular surgery because because it gets a little it gets fun in the setting that you have to design and implement a different strategy with each patient. There's no tried and true method to each time, and you have to consider how the patient presents as well as their condition in terms of how the best treatment. Um, so if we think about the different treatment options, not too long ago, the only treatment option for these patients was open surgical thrombectomy. And, and this is a very tried and true approach, and I think it's often a go-to for good surgical candidates. But it turns out that as not only technology, but also research has progressed, there are a variety of treatment options for patients who present with acute limb ischemia um, and has come about in the past couple of decades. Uh, newer treatment options include catheter-directed thrombolysis, mechanical thrombectomy, or any hybrid combinations of these. And again, that's what makes vascular surgery great, is you can mix and match different aspects in order to provide the best treatment for these patients. And the guidelines from American Heart Association don't give any specific guidance in terms of which treatment is best. And much of that is based upon, because there hasn't been any really really good, well-controlled studies that have optimized which treatment might be best for each different patient. And this kind of underscores the lack of quality data to prevent or to treat patients with acute limb ischemia, but you need to have all these different treatment options in your armamentarium to provide the optimal care. Yeah, that's that's, uh, so important, Frank. You know, I think that um, this is... Where it gets really fun as a trainee to just see the different styles uh, and kind of thought process of the different vascular surgeons in the group. And I think um, to that end, Nick, I'm going to throw this in your court a little bit and put you on the spot. And I'm hoping you can talk a little bit about how you make the treatment decision making uh, around acute limb ischemia, whether that's patient factors, lesion characteristics, anatomy, local resources, time of day. Like what things drive your decision making with respect to which of these techniques to employ? You know, I think anyone who uh, is on Twitter has uh, prob- probably seen uh, lots of posts, I think especially in the last uh, six months of what I like to call clot porn. Um, you know, these pictures of all this clot that's been taken out percutaneously, um, whether it's using a certain device that's on the market um, or not, or whether you do it with an open traditional surgical technique. Um, and I think that just underscores, again, um, kind of, this is an area where it's a satisfying disease to treat um, and everyone kind of wants to treat it um, because it is kind of a satisfying disease to treat. It is also a super frustrating disease to treat because you'll have cases where you get in there and you uh, are expecting that it's going to be a slam dunk thrombectomy and you find out sadly that it's probably not just acute limb ischemia and it was probably acute on chronic limb ischemia and you're in a much different place. So I think one of the most important things you have to do in deciding how you're going to treat this patient is really decide, is this acute limb ischemia? Is this classic embolic disease? Or is this someone who's got existing PAD and they have acute on chronic limb ischemia? Because they are two totally separate animals and they're going to behave completely differently from each other. And the treatment options are going to be different when you think about those two. So when you think about someone with a truly acute limb ischemia from embolic disease, then I think you have a multitude of options. Although I'll I'll tell you that I think that open thrombectomy is still the tried and true method for those patients because it's quick and easy and um, in general it's very well tolerated. Um, whenever we're thinking about patients with acute limb ischemia, time is, is ischemia, right? And time is going to take precedent. You know, the loss of tissue is happening every t- single minute that they're without flow to their, to their leg or to their foot. And so if the faster you can get blood flow there, the better. So if you're thinking about deciding between 
open treatment and percutaneous treatment in acute limb ischemia in someone who's just thrown a clot from their heart to their leg, that's someone who's not sensitized. They haven't been predisposed with ischemia over time from PAD. So they're going to feel that limb ischemia a lot more. You want to get that blood, that leg open quickly. In my opinion, when you do that, the fastest way to get that leg open is with an open surgical procedure. Now you might say, oh, well, what about the patient who's more abund, who's sick, who, you know, couldn't tolerate general anesthesia? You can do these procedures under uh, local. You can do them under regional anesthetic. You can do them percutaneous if you have to. If you're doing them percutaneously, you have to think again, is this something that I'm going to promptly be able to reestablish blood flow? If they've got 2B limb ischemia and you're thinking you're going to go in and you're going to do thrombolysis, that's probably not a good idea because you're probably not going to establish enough blood flow in that first six hours that you're going to reverse their limb ischemia to the point where um, they're no longer ischemic and they're going to have loss of, of muscle and a potentially ner chronic uh, nerve uh, damage and, and have a non-viable limb. So in that patient, you probably don't want to do thrombolysis. Now, could you do percutaneous thrombectomy? Yeah, you probably could do percutaneous thrombectomy. I'll say from experience doing percutaneous thrombectomy, you can sometimes spend a lot more time doing that than doing an open thrombectomy. And you can also lose a lot more blood in those cases than you would with an open thrombectomy. So just keep that in mind. It's not as minimally invasive as you actually think it might be. Um, in a patient with acute on chronic limb ischemia, totally different thing. And that's where you have to really listen to the patient. As Dr. Osler said, you know, the patient is telling you the diagnosis. You have to listen to their history and listen to their physical exam. You know, do they have PAD? You know, one of the best ways to figure that out is asking for a history of claudication, asking for a history about their heart. Do they have AFib? Do they have a history of having had other embolic complications? You know, if they have a history of PAD, you want ABIs on that patient before you take them to the operating room. Because if they have low ABIs on their contralateral side, then that's going to, again, raise your suspicion. This may not be embolic. This could be in situ thrombosis of existing PAD. That is a case where those patients probably aren't going to present with 2B ischemia. They might, but they're probably going to be 2A. They're going to be a little less severe in their presentation. You may have a little bit more time. And that patient, you may think about maybe taking them percutaneously so that you can get better imaging, see what their outflow is. You potentially could get cross that lesion with a wire. You could potentially thrombectomize it uh, percutaneously or use TPA. Um, and in the end of the day, in that case, I can tell you there are many times that the, the, the bailout for acute on chronic limb ischemia in the long term is going to be a bypass. You, you know, you may unfortunately find yourself in the situation that all vascular surgeons do where they've cut down on a patient um, for thrombectomies, they've done femoral cutdowns, they've done below knee cutdowns, um, and they've found that, you know, despite all of that, they just can't clear the, they can't get a catheter, a thrombectomy catheter across the lesion in the tibials, and you just can't get clear of the clot, you can't get blood flow back. Um, those patients, you know, they've got chronic disease, you're in that situation, you just have to do bypass, and it's a great option, and those patients can do well long-term. Um, and the same thing can happen. You're percutaneous and you just can't get it clean. You can't get enough out. In the end, just go to a bypass. That's super helpful. All gold. Um, you know, I, I think that uh, I gave Nick the the cheap shot here a little bit and allowing him to ramble on about uh, the, the kind of uh, low-hanging fruit relative to Frank here, who is, uh, as I uh, am very happy to report, one month away from becoming an attending vascular surgeon. Um, any other thoughts, Frank? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, Nick, Nick's to hit on a lot of the high points and I agree wholeheartedly with him. When, when I think about my algorithm for somebody with acute limb ischemia, the first thing I look at is their Rutherford classification, as Craig pointed out, the different categories and that kind of tells me the urgency that I need to revascularize this patient as well as how viable it is. Then I look at, 
Is it a truly acute or is it acute on chronic? Because that opens up your different options. And then uh, Nick pointed out, you know, your surgical treatments are open thrombectomies. Your endovascular treatments could be lysis, could be percutaneous thrombectomy, could be, you know, a stenting and a balloon angioplasty if it's something like that. And then all the tried and true bypass is kind of your treatment, different treatment modalities. Um, the last thing I, I think we all need to have an important kind of our antennas up for how long these patients have been ischemic. Um, if they've been ischemic for beyond six hours, you always need to consider fasciotomies. And whether that's lower extremity, four compartment fasciotomies or upper extremity fasciotomies, if it's an upper extremity acute limb ischemia, these are all things that, you know, you could do the most amazing revascularization of the patient. But if you don't do the fasciotomies and then they get compartment syndrome and then they, you know, long-term damage and neurological deficits, all your work is for naught in that patient because then it becomes a non-viable limb secondary to the neurological injury, not necessarily the ischemic injury. And, and I think the other point that I want to make is when we think about how to treat patients with acute limb ischemia or any cavascular condition, it's always important to go to, well, what does the data show and how is their best to treat these patients? And, and for good or for bad, acute limb ischemia and the data beyond the management is kind of outdated. I mean, some of your penultimate trials that were conducted, um, including the STYLE trial, the TOPAZ trial, and the Rochester trial were conducted in the mid to late 90s, so like 1994 to 1998. And those studies looked at the difference between, you know, using lysis to treat patients with acute limb ischemia, although some of the, the methodology for those studies are dated because they use urokinus um, instead of more current um, lysis agents we use now. Um, versus open, thromb open thrombectomy and open bypass. And the, the most recent data beyond for treatment of acute limb ischemia is actually your Cochrane Review studies that were conducted in about the 2018 that looked at the meta-analysis and shows that there's actually low quality evidence in for any specific treatment for acute limb ischemia, whether that's an endovascular solution, a lysis solution, or an open thrombectomy. And I think this just highlights that we as the vascular surgeons and surgical surgeons in general just need to try to optimize what we feel is the best for the patients based upon those factors. Rutherford classification, acute versus acute on chronic, and then look at all the different surgical therapies we have in our armamentarium in order to best treat that patient. Great, so you know, um, I, I think that we're all excited to talk about and, and the, um, like to go through the management, decision-making, et cetera, around the time of the operation, but I think it's um, one more important topic to touch on is post-op management. I think that um, these patients can be really challenging to manage postoperatively. Again, Frank touched on compartment syndrome and length of ischemia time, fasciotomies, and things like that. And that can cause a lot of problems, especially for these patients who are going to be heparinized. Um, but uh, there's a couple of points that I want to touch on with respect to the post-op management. Um, I think that it's really important to understand that um, because of the way, the rapidity with which we manage these patients, we see them in the ER, we may or may not get any sort of workup. We don't have a whole lot of time to get really high quality, you know, uh, past medical history and things like that. <clears throat> and it turns out that in a lot of these patients, we go to the operating room still not really knowing why they developed acute limb ischemia in the first place. And so um, it's important post-op, sometimes you got to go backwards a little bit and try to figure out what's going on, what happened to try to prevent recurrence. And so it turns out the most common cause of acute limb ischemia is actually chronic limb ischemia or PAD uh, as the biggest risk factor. And it's also important to understand that, uh, you, you can develop acute limb ischemia in patients who have no evidence of peripheral arterial disease as well. And so um, trying to parse out this PAD versus no PAD history is really important. Nick touched on that a little bit with respect to a history of claudication and things like that. In patients who uh, 
don't have a history of PAD, you really want to be thinking about embolic disease. And it turns out that the most common embolic source is obviously cardiovascular with respect to atrial fibrillation or uh, intracardiac thrombus from prior MI. Um, in patients who don't have a history of PAD, you got to look for those things. And so that includes uh, postoperatively often at least an EKG, if not uh, consider a holter monitor or other long-term monitoring device to look for subclinical atrial fibrillation. Uh, you want to look or try to assess for a prior history of MI or wall motion abnormalities on an echocardiogram to see if there may be turbulent flow and in, in intracardiac thrombus or a valvular source for their um, thrombus. And then another common but often missed source for distal arterial embolism isn't actually, uh, sorry, is uh, an intracardiac shunt, which we uh, often see being missed in the post-op workup. Uh, and so you want to make sure that they're looking for that with, with the echo with a little uh, contrast to check for a PFO uh, or a DVT as the source. Thanks, Craig. You know, I think um, thinking about acute limb ischemia, I think uh, it, we've rapidly kind of gone through this and given you um, some quick kind of guidelines thinking about it. So remember, diagnose it quickly. Uh, once you diagnose it quickly, heparinize a patient, make your treatment decision on that. As Frank said, we kind of really don't know open versus endovascular, what's the best option. It's going to kind of be up to you where you are, what your resources in your hospital are, how sick the patient is, and how long they've been ischemic. Um, and then for sure, as Craig was mentioning, don't forget all the post-operative management of this patient. You want to make sure this doesn't happen again. Patients are at high risk for emboli repeat embolization. If it's a cardiac source, for sure, if you don't heparinize that patient, they're at severe, severely high risk of another embolization. It does not have to be to the same exact place. So keep that in mind. Um, so I think with that, we'll wrap up this uh, segment of Behind the Knife. And uh, thank you for tuning in. Dominate the day. Dominate the day. Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review. Content produced by Behind the Knife is intended for health professionals and is for educational purposes only. We do not diagnose, treat, or offer patient-specific advice. Thank you for listening. Until next time, dominate the day. Dominate the day.